But I would love to have you take your Bibles and uh, turn with me, please, to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and the uh, community group notes, no, no, sermon notes, you'll want those as well. You will notice if you look at your sermon notes that I put community group notes in, even though there are no community groups, well, few, meeting this week. I did that out of sheer habit, so that gives you an extra set of community group notes for you to discuss with yourself or anyone else who you would find to be interesting to talk to. So anyway, those are a bonus. Um, I just got on a roll. What do you say? And produced them. So there you are. Things for you to think about. Uh, as, we, as we head toward our text today in 2 Corinthians 7, will be verses 2 through 9, of course, working our way through this book, I, I want to remember with you a book that a number of you picked up from us several years ago for one of our biblical counseling classes, and it's called How People Change. looks like this. Put, uh, put together authors uh, Tim Lane and Paul David Tripp, and it deals with a weighty issue, specifically how people change, uh, the name of the book. How do people change? And, and it, th- this ties into our text today, as you'll see in a few minutes. But I want to remember with you from this book, um, boy, I lost my little marker, so I'll find it here as I talk. There it is. Um, The authors begin with some false hopes for change, okay? False hopes for change that are very, very common. People use to think, if I could just do this, my life would change or I would change because seeking change is something that's a part of all of our life often because of all the people around us, you know, our kids or uh, a spouse or or maybe our parents. We're wishing somebody would change. And so these things come to our minds. How do we get this to happen? So uh, part of the early chapters of this book, they list five things people do trying to get to this place of change. And they would suggest all five of these are missing something. Okay, so their offerings for false hopes for change. First of all, my circumstances. That is, if my circumstances would just change, finally, I mean, I would be a different person. Um, if, 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 if I won a lot of money in the lottery, I had a guy I knew a number of years ago when the lottery first started, he was, he was all in, thinking if I could just win that thing, my life would change. I'd be a whole different person. And I thought, well, I'm not sure you'd be a different person. You would just have more money to spend on the same vices. But Lord bless you in that. Uh, second, behavior. Uh, We are good behaviorists. Behaviorism is a certain branch of uh, psychology. And many times, Christians are good behaviorists too. Uh, I don't commend that necessarily. I don't think it's a Christ-centered approach. But the idea is, I mean, you get one of those good self-help books from someplace, fix the behavior, and we're good, right? Right? Uh, Well, hold on. Uh, Most of us find that approach ultimately unsatisfying. I'll tell you why. Because if you learn 12 steps not to do the thing you don't want to do, and your heart still longs to do it, you are still a miserable person. Because, well, you've got all this self-control now. You're not doing what you shouldn't do. Got your hands on the steering wheel. You sure want to. (sighs) And I think we want more than that. I want to not want to do whatever it is. I think that's what you want, too. Not only not to do what you shouldn't do, but not to want to do it. Yeah, that's what we want for our kids. So behavior, behavior, just fix my behavior, no problem. Well, no, there's more than that. Third, thinking, my thinking. In other words, 
Power of positive thinking. If I could just think different, then I would be different. Thinking is who you are. So if you could think different, then, then I would be different. So you've got to fix your thinking. And some people have tried this, put their hopes in all this. you just got to think different. Uh, most people who try this discover it misses something. And even if you get, make some progress on changing your thinking, you think more positively. Um, who's your savior? What, you? Lousy savior are you? of your own self. No insult intended. No. My thinking. No, it takes more than changed thinking. Um, fourth, pretty popular, especially a couple decades ago, self-concept, or people would say self-image, or whatever you want to say there. If I could just change the way I think about myself. People say this about their kids sometimes. You know their big problem? They have poor self-image. Really? That, I mean, that's the problem. It might be a problem, but is it the problem? And this whole section here on why that's a poor way of changing, ultimately, if you just finally, suddenly suppose you begin to believe that you're a good and gifted and amazing person. I mean, aren't you? Aren't you a good and amazing and gifted person? Aren't you amazing? Good answer. Good answer. Slow down on that. That was going to be a trick question. Because the minute you said, sure, people around you were going to look and go, really? Well, even if you change the way you think about yourself, uh, you know what? That's a false hope. That's a false hope. You're pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, and you might wake up one day, look in there, and say, who am I trying to fool? I'm not all that amazing after all. I'm really not. I remember some years ago, a popular child psychologist, I won't mention that his name was James Dobson, he put out a book that ultimately I think he would have retracted some years later. It was one of his early books. And he was, he, one of the ways he was encouraging you uh, to, to get, help your kid build their self-esteem was to help them find something they're good at. See any problems with that? What if your kid is a straight D student at everything? Are you saying they're hopeless? Because there's nothing they're good at? There's got to be something. You've got to earn a trophy somehow. You've got to be good at baking cookies, for goodness sakes. But no, they burned them. Oh, wow, then you must be a lousy person, right? Because there's no help in you. Wow, problems. And then fifth, this sounds really religious. You just need to trust Jesus more. If you could just trust Jesus more, all your problems would be solved. You could change if you just trusted more. And often people struggle with that. They say, but I don't. I don't trust. I mean, this is really a hard thing. And ultimately, if you're not careful, you can turn Jesus into some kind of a cosmic therapist whose main purpose is to affirm you. There are people who approach religion like this. No, really, there are. Who would say, really, Jesus died on the cross to affirm your self-esteem. Because you're so wonderful. Jesus couldn't imagine heaven without you. You say, wow, what would heaven be if I wasn't there? Incomplete. I mean, who are you? Yeah, go ahead with the laugh track. You're kidding me, right? Heaven stops until Jay shows up? Like, well, it wasn't much fun until... Wow, what kind of nonsense is that? Jesus didn't die on the cross to affirm my self-concept, my self-image. That's not why Jesus died on the cross. He died on the cross because I'm a lousy sinner. And so are you. And I can't pay for my own sin. He didn't die on the cross to affirm me. Wow. Help me out. So, so where do you go with this? Well, you go to Scripture, and that's where they're going to go to try to, to find real hope for change. Because ultimately, we want more than false fixes and things that don't work well. We want, we want true change. I'm calling it real change in our text today. Real change. Because this text talks about some elements related to real change, which is why I took that big time at the beginning there to, to introduce the topic. Real change. Real change. It's what you want. It's what I want. 
And it's a process that God takes us through as Christians. I want to pray for us and want to talk about this with you this morning, okay? Pray with me, please. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for each person who's come in today uh, throughout the morning. Thank you for our brothers and sisters up at Central and across town at Grace as our sister churches also, even right now, open the word of God together, same text, with us. Thank you for them. Bless Pastor Kevin, Pastor Tyler, as they preach this morning, others from our congregation who are there in both places leading. Um, Thank you for the privilege of opening your word. And Father, today I know um, as we all come, uh, sometimes there are other things on our hearts and minds than the topic of the day. And I thank you that you are still capable of using even a different topic to encourage and minister to our hearts. And I pray that you would do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, sermon notes are here. Um, text is open. I want to read the text and then just kind of orient us to what's going on and talk about this with three different headings today. All right? So, uh, God's Word, 2 Corinthians 7, 2 through 9. Two paragraphs we're going to look at together. Paul writes this, God's Word. He says, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without, fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that 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 letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Our text today, God's word. Now, I want to remind you of a couple of things as we're working our way through 2 Corinthians. So I want to remind you kind of what's going on. It really matters, the big picture does, for our text today. So two letters in the New Testament called 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Um, as we study both of those books, both those letters, we will notice that uh, some would say there were probably up to four letters actually written. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, we would say third and fourth, that God in his sovereign plan decided we didn't need the other two. It wasn't a mistake of history. It wasn't that somebody dropped it off the edge of the boat and they went, wow, there went inspired scripture. It was that God did not intend for us to have those. One of those letters is referenced here. Um, it's apparently a grievous letter. It's mentioned in verse, not, verse eight. We don't have that. And it's because it was private mail, I think, from Paul to them. More on that in a little bit. But perhaps up to four different letters, what we call 1 Corinthians. Again, these are letters. We call them books often. They're really letters. But 1 Corinthians, Paul's addressing a whole lot of problems. It's a place full of all kinds of stuff going wrong. So 1 Corinthians, which we've preached through several years ago, 
It's, it, he's addressing all these problems. He's saying, straighten up and fly right. Knock that off. Uh, where'd you come up with that? Nobody does that except you guys. That's a mess. So he's really laying it on pretty thick. Then you come to 2 Corinthians, and one of the big topics, uh, maybe one would say the biggest, but way up there, is, is, is Paul is aware that after he left, he'd been there for 18 months at Corinth, that once he left, there were other people who came in and said, you know that Paul guy? I mean, he really wasn't all that much. In fact, I mean, he really had it wrong in a number of key areas, and now I'm here. Amazing, isn't it? They begin to undermine him as what I call a capital A apostle. And you remember my explaining this. I hope you get this kind of thing. Paul was a, was a part of a limited group of people that the Bible addresses as apostles upon whom the church was built. Paul references this in Ephesians 2, the apostles and prophets, uh, the foundation of the church, uh, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. I call those capital A apostles. There's a limited number, okay? Did not continue. Now, there's small A apostles. I take that from the meaning of the word as sent ones, and I see that as a giftedness, often expressed in missionaries who, who just think it's amazing to go to the ends of the earth where you know terrible things happen and you eat bugs, and they have that gift where they think that sounds like a wonderful idea, and off they go. You go, you are one of those. Um, a sent one, sent to the ends of the earth. Probably if, if I were to put it in spiritual gift language, I'd say that's the gift of apostle, A, sent one, small a, I would say. But that's my understanding of how that term works. Paul's a capital A apostle, and there were people here undermining him, and he is pleading with them to get it right, to get it right with God's word, to get it right with who he was as an official spokesman for God. So this is is a big topic of what's going on in 2 Corinthians, and that, of course, shows up in today's text. So what I want to do, if you look at the notes in front of you, there's some review notes and a little paragraph about today's text that I'll just let you look at. But, but I have three headings here, all relative to this business of change. Real change, I say, is heart work, looking at verses 2 to 4. Then similarly, verses 5 through 9, I'm saying real change is hard work. And then also from verses 5 through 9. Kind of a different lens, look at the same paragraph. Real change is cause for true joy. So those are the three things I want to touch on in in our brief time here this morning. So looking at this first one under two to four, real change is heart work. You'll notice that the idea of the heart is how Paul begins verse four, make room in your hearts for us. He references this, his own heart again in verse 3, you're in our hearts, and this is similar to what he just said in chapter 6, verses 11, 12, and 13. He's speaking of the heart. Open your hearts to Our heart is open wide. Come on, widen your hearts. It's very interesting. This language, this wrestling for the heart is very normal in the Bible, okay? The Bible routinely speaks of real change as heart change, not just behavior change or language change or external things. Real change, the Bible describes as heart change. So your affections. Jonathan Edwards, great American theologian from yesteryear, would, would, would write about religious affections. The things you love, the longings of your heart, these drive you, see, what you love. So your heart, your heart is, is regularly in the Bible seen as the focus of change. And you know this. I know you, this is, it, 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 you, sometimes you just have to call it out. 
those of us in that task of parenting, we want our kids not just to behave a certain way when we're present, right? We want them to behave a certain way when we're not there because their hearts are a certain way. And what I know often happens, and sometimes people wonder, where did I go wrong? I don't know about the right and wrong part of it, but I know sometimes we, we, we can focus so much on externals to the exclusion of the internal that the minute you're not there, bam, they're going right where their heart said they want to go, which may not be where you want them to go. And by the way, it's not just your kids, it's you too, because you're just like this. If you only behave a certain way because you're, you know, somebody might see you, you know, what, what's really in your heart? See, so, so it isn't just our kids. We as, as adults wrestle with the same thing. The Bible routinely talks about the heart. Now, this is good news, bad news. You remember Jeremiah 17, 9. <laughs> oh boy, the heart is... I know, deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Then the next verse, I, the Lord, search the hearts. God says, I see it. (laughs) I know all about it. The longings of our heart. I mentioned earlier, we want, I think, when we think about change, we want the kind of change that not only changes the external behavior, but changes the heart. So that you won't have to be all white-knuckled, don't do that, don't do that, don't say that, don't say that, don't look at that, don't look at that. But where your heart is at rest because you don't want to. See, that's what we want for our kids. That's what we want for us. We want to want. Now, I press on this a bit more, and there's a bit to say about this throughout the morning. Uh, If you look at my heading here, my second bullet point, I went right to a point of application here instead of waiting till later because this is a big cultural moment on this topic. If you're paying attention, you know that all around us, people are asking the same question, not with those words. How does real change take place? People on the left, you might say, are asking this. People on the right are asking the same thing. How do we capture the hearts of people? And so we try a variety of things. We have seminars, protests, we yell, burn things up, violence, I call it, sensitivity training. Don't we love sensitivity training? Some of you have been subjected to this in your workplace. Then certainly it's clear because it clearly worked because you guys are so sensitive. New laws, we love laws, right? We can make new laws because that would make people always obey them. Uh, if we just made a new law about, about that or whatever it is, people would never do that again, would they? It's amazing how laws work. Well, of course, they say all that tongue-in-cheek. Um, I hear that, and you do too. People say, well, we've got to pass a law on this so that no one ever suffers what I've suffered again. And my heart, routinely, as I hear that in the news, say, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. But I hate to tell you that whatever law you pass, it will not keep that from happening again. Because we live in a broken world with broken people, and somebody else will come along and do the same thing, even if there's a law that says don't do it. Now, I put on here, uh, these may all have a place, but heart change takes longer. It's really an easy task. Oh, okay. Um, you might say, well, I don't think those all do have a place. And if, you, if your community group was going to meet this week, I would suggest that would be a point of discussion. Do, any, do those things all have a place? Is there a time for any of those things? I would direct you to Ecclesiastes. It says there's a time for everything under the sun. There may be a time for any or all of those, but that's another conversation. My big point is our culture around us is asking the same thing. How do you change the hearts of people? And often our culture defaults to making rules, regulations aimed at external things, but struggles to change the heart. 
I was moaning about some of this cultural stuff the other day. I was in a meeting not related to this church, and uh, one of the gals was talking about some things, and she, she used an expression that she, right away, as soon as she said it, I thought, oh, dear, because it was, it was not bad. I know her heart, and I know what her words were. It, it wasn't that big a deal, but right away, she was chagrined because she thought, oh, somebody might hear me say something there that was wrong culturally. I think I just messed up culturally. Someone's going to shame me. And I felt so bad for her because she was stumbling around trying to back up from, oh, no, I'm on thin ice here. I, I didn't mean anything. That, oh, no. Well, our culture's worried about it, too. How can we change the hearts of people? I know. I'll just listen to you. If you say anything partially wrong, I will yell at you. There, that'll change everyone's hearts. And we all know, and the Bible knows, that's not the way it works. Not if you want heart change. So um, I, I look here. This text is all about it. Paul is pleading with their hearts. Make room in your heart, he says. I'm longing for your heart. That's verses 11, 12, 13 of 6. We've wronged no one. He gives them reasons to trust him. He would say, there, you know, remember when we were together? I was there with you 18 months, for goodness sakes. Do you remember this? Do you remember how we behaved among you? Do you remember the trust we had? So he's, he's appealing to things that they know. He's not just yelling at him. He's saying, you, you, you remember how we lived among you? Remember our reputation? I was there for a year and a half. Do, do you remember how much you trusted me then? I mean, I, I left town, and, and come on, folks. Don't you remember what it was like when we hung out? Um, remember, remember, he's saying to them. He's after their hearts. Now, I love the end of verse 4. He says, I'm filled with comfort about them, but he says that final phrase is so gripping. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. And that phrase catches my attention because I'm not sure that I would say that about me. In all my affliction, I am overflowing with, I don't know. How's it work for you? When you're, when you're in a season of affliction, what do you overflow with? Don't answer. Careful, careful. Yeah, despair, sadness, self-pity. Fill in your favorite vice. I want to, I because of the weekend we're at, go one sidebar to the left, but it's an illustration of this. Okay, in all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. You're aware, because you uh, are culturally aware, you know that Friday was a year uh, since Russia invaded Ukraine. The whole world was keeping track of this. In, in honor of that, the Gospel Coalition uh, published a couple of articles that I, I just want to draw to your attention. They relate to our text um, and to us, frankly. You can find both these articles. One is uh, 18 pages long, the other is 13 or 14. You can find these at thegospelcoalition.org. I would commend them both to you. Thegospelcoalition.org. Y'all get that? If you Google Gospel Coalition, you'll find them both. Um, so one of these is entitled, One Year Later, Moscow Pastor Says, I Know God Is Going to Judge Us All. And this is an article on the ministry of Pastor Evgeny Bakhmutsky, which I'm probably saying wrong, a wonderful ministry in, in Moscow. Uh, Moscow Bible Church, he is an IFCA member. Interesting, that's the same organization we're affiliated with. Um, he has a long history with good people whose name, if I told you all, you would recognize them. Interesting, last hour, 
Somebody who attended here said, I was his roommate a bunch of years ago in college. Master's college, I believe. We were roommates. No, really, we were. I know that name. I also thought it was interesting. I'll get to the point of that article in a moment. But I remembered this article, ran by my office and picked up this. This is a pamphlet about him written before the war. And um, it was published by Shepherd's uh, Theological Seminary or Shepherd's Church or um, probably at the time Colonial Baptist well, where Craig and Pastor Craig and Juliet came from. But they know these guys. But my point is this. He's talking about their ministry. Um, here in our place, we're, we're assisting Grace Community Church Central. Uh, Pastor Buck Mutzvi has got a network of about 100 churches who've connected with him. You guys are worried about me with two others? Check in with this guy. He's got 100. Okay, relax. We're going to be fine around here. It's working, okay? Well, he, he, he talks about the difficulty. He talks about this has been the hardest year of his life talks about how he continues to mentor church leaders and small group leaders through all of this, talks about the young people coming to church, uh, crying out to God in his prayers, conflicts, he says, within the church are painful. Probably the most painful thing is to see brothers and sisters who love and minister with each other begin to lose each other. But then he says this, my point. He says, our church services have never been so, what does he say? Joyful. It's in Moscow. You can walk to Red Square. Conflict. People yelling at him. Other parts of the world. He's a, he's a Russian. Bad people, bad people, bad. Come on. He didn't do it. Our church service, he says, church services have never been so joyful, and they have also never been so crowded. Their place seats 700. Standing room only filled with young people seeking God. Our church services have never been so joyful. How can that be? In all our affliction, Paul says, I'm overflowing with joy. Pastor Bakhmutsky would say the same thing. In all our affliction here in Moscow, we are overflowing with joy. The presence of God. Now, likewise, um, from the angle of the Ukraine, Christians. This article, one year later, Christians in Ukraine say, we wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Try that. We wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Did you know that there is a Kiev Theological Seminary? I don't know that I knew that. Apparently thriving. There's a picture here of current students. No, I mean current students at Kiev Theological Seminary. The room is filled with young people heading into ministry, gospel ministry. Well, also in this article, if you get all the way to page 14, there's a lot of pictures. You can do it. Um, You find a quote here. It says this, if you were handing out a box of Bibles in the 90s, they'd be gone in two minutes, said Caleb Succo, who made his first trip there in 1994. Succo, wait, he's from here. He's from the Northwest. Pastor Mark, some of you know his dad. Um, in Baptist circles, Pastor Mark Succo, he, he's a legend here in the Northwest. Man, Caleb, his son, graduated from Northwest Baptist Seminary, moved to Ukraine, man, made his first trip there in 94, moved to Ukraine permanently in 2007, got a sister and family there as well, right there doing ministry. Wow. And here, here these guys are, Keith Theological Seminary, he's got pictures, telling stories, this picture courtesy of 
Caleb Succo. Wow, that's kind of fun. Picture of a pastor and his wife, pastor who was arrested when the Russian forces came through. Uh, he said he knew he was in trouble when they put the, the, the pillowcase over his head and then began to beat him, a beating that would break bones and put him in the hospital for two weeks until his wife could see him and take him home. Um, he's a pastor, just a normal guy, beaten within an inch of his life. We wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Huh. Paul says, in all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. And of course, not meaning to guilt us or me. What's my affliction? And how do I handle it when I face mine? And I, I know that if I'm going to say with Paul ever, in all my affliction, I'm overflowing with joy, that requires heart change. Because my heart immediately runs to self-pity, like you do. Okay, I'm saying under this first heading, real change is heart work. It's heart work. It's what Paul is pleading for. And examples of this are all around us. In all our affliction, we're overflowing. Paul says we're overflowing with joy. I want to move to verses 5 through 9. Real change is hard work. So it's heart, heart work and hard work. Yes. And I would suggest to you now, we'll look at verses 5 through 9 through, through two different lenses. As we look at it through this lens of the work part, um, I, I grab the term wrestling. The text describes a wrestling for the hearts and minds of God's people. I'm referencing that word from Ephesians 6.12, where Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, against principalities and powers. He's speaking there in that text about wrestling in terms of the spiritual work. I'm using it in terms of the wrestling that Paul is doing for the hearts and minds of people, and not so much the principalities and power angle necessarily, but this whole paragraph is filled with aggressive words, affliction, fighting, fears, longing, mourning, grief, regret. These are the things Paul is going through to bring about change in the hearts of God's people, and some of you know what it's like, because some of you in this room are wrestling for the hearts and minds of your children or your peers or your brothers and sisters or your parents, you are wrestling for their hearts. Maybe in your prayers, but you are wrestling with God. You know what I'm talking about because you're after what Paul is. Not just lighthearted work, not just casual stuff. No, real heart change, please. And I'm saying real change is hard work and real change is hard work. And Paul is wrestling aggressively for this. God, I'm here today for my who? My children, my adult children, my parents, my coworkers, my siblings. I'm here today, God. Here I am again. Maybe wrestling is verbal. Maybe all it is can be is prayer. It can't always be person to person wrestling with ideas or arguing. It can't be that. You're going to ruin everything. You know that. But there's a wrestling. That's what I'm after. Paul is wrestling for real change as in heart change, and it's not easy. This is not easy stuff. Now, on the good news side, as I mentioned here, second little bullet point here, heart change is one of the key facets of what we call the new covenant. There's good Bible students, and that's what you all are when you uh, part of Sunset Bible Church. We open our Bibles together, and we, we study, and some of us have been doing this a long time. Some of us are newer at it. 
New covenant. New covenant. What is this? Okay, I gave you two texts there. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. This, God is talking in those Old Testament texts about what he calls the new covenant. There's coming a day. You see, there's coming a day when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel. I'll make a new covenant with my people. And it's not going to be so much about uh, the words of God written on tablets of stone looking at old covenant. But he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to take out the hearts of stone yours. And I'm going to put in again hearts of flesh that are malleable, moldable by the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God will work in you. Jesus says about the coming of the Holy Spirit, he has been with you, he will be in you. Speaking of the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came into his people, I'll dwell not only among them, Old Testament, uh, I'll dwell in them, I'll dwell in them. As we heard last week, the temple of the living God indwelt by the Spirit of God. If the Holy Spirit is not in you, you do not belong to Jesus. Do you know this? That's Romans 8, 9. If you do not, if you know Christ as your Savior, the Spirit of God lives in you. Whether you listen to him or not is another story, but he is there to belong to, to, belong to Christ, to be born again to be what the Bible calls saved, that term we often use in evangelical circles, means the Spirit of God dwells in you. Okay? And begins that process of change. If anyone is in Christ, Paul would say in chapter 5, he is a new creature, old things passed away, new things are coming. All of these things, Paul says, are from God. All of this is from him. So the new covenant, God is going not to just, not just give me rules about what it should look like, He's going to work on changing my heart. Back in the 80s, 90s, I don't know, we had this cool song. We'd sing periodically, change my heart, oh God. Make it ever new. Change my heart, oh God. May I be like you. That's a good song. It was about this. And I gave you here, of course, Psalm 139. Uh, That's a good song, a psalm, and it's a good prayer at the conclusion of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, know my heart, try me, know my anxious thoughts, see if there be any hurtful way in me, lead me in the way everlasting. What a wonderful thing to pray. Search me, O God, know my heart, bring, bring true change to my life. By the way, somebody may be wanting that for you. Somebody who loves you may be wanting true change for you. I hope it's what you want too, real change, not just lip service, heart change, right? Looking at verses five through nine, Paul describes this. When we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn. Wow. Fighting without fears, fear within. I know for some of you, that sounds like a normal day with some preschoolers. But Paul is talking about more than that. I don't know what he had in mind with fighting without and fear within, but, but significant life things. Then he says in verse 6, and I'm going to tell you if, you, if you miss everything else and all you get is the last phrase of verse 4 and the first phrase of verse 6, you'll have done well this morning, okay? So verse 6, God who comforts the downcast. And I just pause there to remind myself, aren't you glad it's, that it doesn't say, but God who rebukes the downcast. Some of your Bibles would say the depressed or the discouraged. Those terms are used in different Bible translations. God who, who smacks upside the head the discouraged. It doesn't say that, does it? 
No, he comes alongside the, the downcast, the discouraged, the depressed. He comforts the downcast, discouraged, and depressed. And you'll notice here there are three sources of comfort that are mentioned, one right after the other. God comforts the downcast. There's one. He comforted us by the coming of Titus. That's another, God's people. We'll talk more about the Titus thing in a minute. And not only by Titus' coming, also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. He's, well, again in a minute, but you're going to hear that Titus was, was, was encouraged by good response. So seeing the work of God, I would suggest verse 6 is about three sources of comfort. God, God's people, and seeing the work of God in the lives of other people. Those are three sources of encouragement. And I just want to remind you, if you want to flip back for just a moment, I'll go there just briefly to chapter 1, 2 Corinthians 1. I want you to remember this theme of comfort is how the whole book began. And so it is here again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. In that paragraph, there are 10, 10 references to the word comfort in its either, either its noun form or its verbal form. 10, 10 sources, 10, 10 comments about comfort. He comforts us in all our affliction so that we can comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God and all the way through. God is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. I love that description of him. I count on it. I count on it a lot. God, you are the Father of mercies. I need your mercy. You're the God of all comfort, and I need this today too. That's, that's verse 6. Now, I move to my third element here, and we'll go there briefly. Real change is heart work. Real change is hard work. And real change is cause for true joy. So this is the Titus thing, okay? Titus apparently took that grievous letter to the folks at Corinth, read it, got their response, and brought a response, okay? That's what's going on behind the scenes. I want to show you something grammatical. Some of you love this sort of thing. Some of you just go, oh, for goodness sakes, who notices things like that? Well, people who study the Bible, and I got this from somebody else who's far smarter than I because I wouldn't have noticed it either, okay? But if you read back in chapter 2, chapter 2 Corinthians 2, 12 to 13, you'll notice the same topic is here. Troas, Titus, Macedonia. And then verse 14 in chapter 2, he says, but thanks be to God. And now he's going to talk about some other stuff. So those who study 2 Corinthians big picture would suggest that Paul goes straight from chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 to chapter 7, verse 5. And that chapter 2, verse 14 through 7, 4 is like an, uh, a divinely appointed rabbit trail that wasn't by mistake. He did it on purpose. So that's kind of interesting. You'll only notice that with a big flyover. Uh, I I've, would love to just remind you in your study of God's word, you know, some of you love to do word-by-word study. Some of you go paragraph-by-paragraph. Some of you read chapters at a time. Now and then, it's good for you to get a bigger picture than that and read a whole book at once. Book, okay, letter. Say you read letters. You read the whole thing. There's a value to this, even though it isn't daily bread-sized. You know, here's three verses to read. Bless you if that's what you do. But every now and then, you need the bigger picture because you'll notice things you won't notice if you go smaller bites. You just won't see it. So if you read 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians in a big picture, you'll notice 
Troas, Titus, Macedonia. Then he says some other really good stuff. And then suddenly you're back to Troas, Macedonia, and Titus. And you go, wait, didn't we just talk about that? Yeah, you did, back in chapter 2. So it seems that uh, what just preceded is, is now he's returning to his main point. Okay, uh, small stuff. Paul is going to be talking about this business of, of getting the letter to, to the people at Corinth through Titus and what that was like. And I, I, if you look at my bullet points, I just want to press on a couple of details here briefly. Paul's, Paul's heart is not to teach him a lesson or give him some of their own medicine or teach them that they're messing with the wrong person. You ever said anything like that? Or thought it? Somebody writes you something, you're going to write something back, and you're going to let them have it. Paul doesn't hit send until his motive is in the right place. He's not trying to get him. He's not trying to hurt him. He's wanting their good. So he wrote the letter that hurt. But he wanted their good. He wasn't trying. He wasn't trying to hurt them, even though he knew it would. He was trying to help them. And so he's, his motive was, was for their good. And I love this. Now, Paul here talks about the comfort of God as, as he was waiting for the coming of Titus. And a, a quick idea of what that's about. You know how it is when you send a text and you wait and wait and wait like five minutes and they don't text you back and it's awful? Like, what's wrong with these people? I send him a text, right? Come on. Well, and then an email. Some of you guys, I know this is true because some of you probably in the room are guilty. I'm not making eye contact with any of you. But some of you have email addresses you all don't check very often. Like, I only check that one once a week. And I think, well, why do you have it then? Because I sent you an email a week ago thinking maybe someday you'd get back to me on that. And, you, you know, yeah, 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 I finally read that. I don't use that much. <gasps> Forward it or something to yourself. You can do that. It's worse for Paul because he writes a letter, sends it to Titus. Titus gets on a boat, so to speak, to go to Corinth. And it's going to be weeks, probably months, till he finds out if they're mad at him or not. So he's going, Titus, dude, come on back here. Well, Titus is sailing on a boat or something. I don't know how he got there. He's off with this grievous letter. He's probably going to tick him off. Titus is pace, or Paul's pacing back and forth. Maybe, maybe in Philippi, people have wondered if he's writing from Philippi. Maybe he's pacing back and forth, going, "Where is that guy? Did they hate me or do they love me?" Or, oh my goodness sake! And finally, Titus comes. It's worse than you're waiting for a text. Titus comes back. Titus comes back, and he says, "Paul, now there's still work to be done, but there was a great response. Their hearts are turned toward you, Paul." And Paul says, as some of you have experienced when you've waited on the Lord for some area of change and it comes and you say, thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Some of you know about that because you've wrestled with God for some area of change and then you see it and you, oh my, my goodness, my heart is so happy. That's Paul right here. He comforted us by the coming of Titus. He told us all of these things. You're grieved at the right things. Now, my bullet points. Paul expresses regret at having caused pain. At the same time, he's glad he did it. He embraced the likelihood of offending. You know that the challenge today, of course, is we live in an easily offended culture. In fact, a culture that's very proud of being offended. I think that's a shame. That should be a shame. 
See? Wow, I'm just so offended at what you... Really? Really? You mean to tell me you're just all excited because you have such thin skin? Shame on us for that as a culture. No, no. Thicker skin. Tender heart, thicker skin. We, as God's people, should be hard to offend. Not easily offended every time somebody looks at us cross-eyed. Oh, I'm so offended at you. Like, really? Um, Our culture, of course, offending is like the worst thing. I'm offended. And, of course, you're supposed to go... I'm so sorry. I would never have said what I said if I thought it would offend you. Paul says, you're offended. Praise the Lord. How did it come across? Um, Well, not praise the Lord you were offended, but praise the Lord you responded well. I'd say it again. He wasn't intending to offend. He wasn't that talk show host who's doing it on purpose. But please notice my five words in bold. Being easily offended reveals pride. Would people who know you well say you're easily offended? I stand by my statement. It reveals pride. Uh, Pride attends every one of us. And for you to pretend like it doesn't, it's 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 like a lion sitting at the door of your house. Pride. To be human is to battle pride. Okay? So I'm not picking on you personally. I'm saying this part of being human. It's our heart saying, who do they think they're talking to? Oh, they have no business. That, <laughs> kind of bristling. That's pride. Rather than your heart saying, wow, I wonder if any of that's true. Your heart is going, oh, what do you know? You're an idiot too. Right? Well, let me just tell you what I think of you. Pride. Pride. Don't be that. Don't be that. So Paul says what he says. They have to wrestle it through. He says, no, I I know it caused you pain, and I regret it that it caused you pain, but I don't regret it because it brought the right result. My closing comment, verse 9, you were grieved into repenting. Next week, we're going to discuss repenting more. Paul's not talking about repenting to a priest or repenting to a person. He's talking about repenting before the Lord. And he's drawing a difference here between being grieved and and repenting. They are not the same thing. Do you know that? You can be grieved and sit in a puddle of tears and not repent. Okay. Responding to God's word, I'm going to comment on one. Here's the thing. Have you spent most of your time this morning thinking about all the people in your, in, in your life who need to change? Or have you been spending more of your time thinking about how you need to change? That's all I'm going to ask. Most of us sit here in a sermon like this and think about all those, boy, knuckleheads. Finally should listen to me. I'm just saying maybe you're the knucklehead. Would you stand? Let's talk to God about that. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) Our Father, thank you so much. Thank you for the Apostle Paul and his willingness to step into deep weeds because of his concern for the Corinthians. Thank you that he was willing to say what was hard. Thank you that he wrestled for their heart, even as you wrestle for ours. Thank you for your patience with us. Give us deep humility. Shut our mouths. Make us better listeners than talkers. 
Thank you for Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. We're here because of him. We thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.